quick, what are you doing to disciple your kids? Catechids can help. Catechids is a little book with 100 simple questions and answers to help parents teach their young children the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. I wrote Catechids for my own kids, and they love it. Get Catechids on Amazon today or by going to thethink.institute. Welcome to The Think Podcast, the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective with your host, Joel Sedeckes. And now, get ready to think. All right, well, welcome to The Think Podcast with Joel Sedeckes. I'm Joel Sedeckes, and I hope you're ready for a very fast episode. What I want to do right now is to address eight different contradictions that were raised to me on YouTube yesterday that I went out and found answers to. Um, And I say contradictions, but really they are purported contradictions, supposed contradictions. And what I want to do is I want to show you how to answer these contradictions, purported contradictions. There are no actual contradictions in the Bible, but I want to show you how to do them, how to do it quickly and um, efficiently. And also I want to just reassure you as a follower of Christ, that there are no true contradictions in the Bible. Sometimes there are copyist errors. Sometimes there are cultural ways of speaking or apocalyptic ways of speaking or other non-literalistic ways of speaking that seem like they create a contradiction, but in reality, they don't. The Bible is God's word. And uh, as I've spoken about many times on this program, the very concept of a contradiction or a contradiction being a problem, a logical problem, presupposes the existence of logic, which makes good sense within the biblical Christian worldview, but not within the skeptical or unbelieving worldviews. So is that enough of a preamble for you? I hope you're ready because we're going to get into eight different contradictions and um, a purported supposed contradictions and we're going to address them. So set your timers. I'm going to try to do this in eight minutes. The eight minutes has not started yet, but I'm going to try to do this in eight minutes. And um, before I do, I want to just remind you, if you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you're watching on Facebook, give this video a like, and hey, why not share it with your friends? Some non-believers might see this. Some of your Christian friends who just need to be encouraged in their faith might see it, but uh, go ahead and do that. And if you're listening later on the podcast, I got to give a shout out to you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Please give us an honest five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us get the word out. All right, here we go. Eight different contradictions. These were given to me by a user on Facebook yesterday. Without any further ado, here we go. Number one, Matthew 24, 29 says that Jesus says that the stars will fall from heavens. It's obvious that he thought the stars were just points in the sky and didn't actually know what they are. Okay, the answer to this is very simple. Jesus is speaking in apocalyptic language, not literalistic language language. There's there's no error here. And it's also not a contradiction. That's actually, uh, supposedly, this is a contradiction. There's nothing 
it, there's nothing logically contradictory about Jesus making an error, a scientific error, but this isn't a scientific error either, which is why I want to address it. So he's speaking apocalyptically. He's referring to a radical change in earthly national powers in the same vein as the Old Testament prophets used to do. When apocalyptic prophets speak of stars falling from the heavens, they're talking about momentous shakeups on the earth. A commentator named Benson says this, the prophet Isaiah speaks in the same manner of the destruction of Babylon in Isaiah 13.10. The stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun will be darkened and is going forth, and the moon will not cause her light to shine. Obviously, Isaiah wasn't saying that the stars were literally going to fall or the moon would literally be darkened. Instead, he's talking about in, an earthly kingdom being shaken, and he's using apocalyptic um, astrophysiological astrophysical language to talk about the shakeups on the earth. So great commotions in, this is what Benson says, great commotions and revolutions upon the earth are often represented by commotions and changes in the heavens. Okay, hopefully that one is settled. Now, in Mark 4, 30 through 32, Jesus says that the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. That's not true. The poppy seed, which they had back then, is smaller than a mustard seed. All right, how do we explain this? A couple different ways we can go about explaining this. Answers in Genesis has a pretty good explanation. One, this response, this supposed contradiction, again, it's not technically a contradiction. This would just be another scientific error. The user, I think, is confused about what a scientific question is, uh, a scientific, um, sorry, a scientific question versus a logical contradiction. Not surprising. He has no framework for logic in the first place, but we're, we're not going to hold that against him. So what do we, uh, how do we explain this? Well, first of all, given uniformitarian assumptions that things have always gone the way they always have gone, that, that natural processes continue the way they always have, um, that is what is necessary to assume that the mustard seed wasn't always the smallest seed. It's very possible that in the last 2,000 years, the mustard seed has changed in size. Um, orchid seeds are actually technically the smallest seed today is a type of orchid seed. It's very, very small. But that's not to say that it wasn't that it was always that way. It could very well have been that the mustard seed may have been the smallest seed 2,000 years ago when Jesus said that. But there's another explanation as well. Jesus is speaking to an agrarian people. He's talking about seeds that they would have planted in the garden. And it's very possible that the the mustard seed was the smallest seed that they would have used at that time. It could have been the smallest seed that they knew about, or it could have just been Jesus speaking with hyperbole, using a figure of speech. Um, you see this all over scripture. You see this all over teaching. Hey, um, you know, uh, it talks about how the, the sun rises and the sun sets. We still do the same thing in our current uh, modern day newspapers, but we use figures of speech to describe the way things appear as if, you know, it sounds like that's the way that they actually are, but we know, of course, that that's not the case. So uh, Jesus could be speaking figuratively, um, or there could have been a change in the size of seeds over the last 2,000 years. Neither one amounts to um, a necessary scientific error, and neither one is a contradiction. All right. Purported contradiction number three, we're going to try to buzz through these. 2 Kings 8.25 says that Ahaziah became king in the 12th year. 2 Kings 9.29 says Ahaziah became king in the 
11th year. Now, this answer is coming from a website called defendinginerrancy.com. Here's what they say. Both are correct. The difference stems from the manner in which the reign of a king was calculated in Israel versus Judah. At the time of the reign of Ahaziah in Judah, the system used to calculate the years of the reign of a king was the accession year system. According to this system, the first official year of the reign of a king did not begin until the beginning of the new year after that king had taken the throne. Whereas in Israel, that they used a non-accession year system in which the year that that came, king came to the throne was counted the whole year, even if it was only part of a year. So that's why you have two different counts. Uh, you just got two different ways of counting the systems. It's not a contradiction. You just have to study a little bit of history. I found that in like one minute searching online. So this YouTube user probably should have done his homework a little better. Um, next objection. This is objection number four. 2 Kings 8.26 says that Ahaziah was 22 when he became king. 2 Chronicles 22.2 says that Ahaziah was 42 when he became king. So what's going on here? This is an example of a copyist error. It's not a contradiction. It's a copyist error, clearly. Again, defendinginerrancy.com says this. Here's what we find. Um, this is clearly a copyist error, and there is sufficient evidence to demonstrate that Ahaziah was 22 years old when he began to reign in Judah. In 2 Corinthians, 2 Kings rather, 8.17, we find that Joram, father of Ahaziah and son of Ahab, was 32 years old when he became king. Joram died at age 40, eight years after becoming king. Consequently, his son Ahaziah could not have been 42 when he took the throne after his father's death. Otherwise, he would have been older than his father. So clearly the younger age is correct. It's just a simple copyist error. Now you might say, oh, but how could God allow copyist errors into the Bible? Well, here's here's the good news. We have two records of the exact same accent, uh, ascension, uh, accession rather, of this king. So God made sure that it was recorded twice. He knew that there would be a copyist error, and he allowed us to use logic to figure out which one is correct. Clearly, a son cannot be older than his father. Um, logic is supported here, and biblical inerrancy is also supported. It's all good. Now, the next objection, objection five, Second Kings 24.8 says this, uh, Jehoiachin, Jehoiakin was 18 years old when he began to reign as king, but Second Chronicles 36.9 says that he was only eight years old when he began to reign as king. Again, this answer is coming from defending inerrancy.com. And this is another example of what is probably a copyist error. Here's why. When um, Jehoiakim was um, uh, an invading army, carted him off and put him in jail. And it also says that, uh, put him in a dungeon. It says that he was judged for his evil deeds against the Lord for his sin. Um, that seems to be the picture of an older man, probably someone who is who was 18 years old, an 18-year-old can get into all kinds of mischief, sin, and trouble, whereas an eight-year-old, it's probably not characteristic. Now, I'm not saying eight-year-olds don't sin. I've got four kids, and I'm a former eight-year-old myself. I know eight-year-olds can sin, but the way he was treated by both God and the invading army indicate it, the older age is probably correct. Probably what happened here is um, a copyist, again, just um, miscopied the number eight and made it into an 18 instead. Um, very simple copying error. But again, we've got two records of this extant in Scripture today, so we can see, hey, here's the correct one. We can see that that was an error. It's not that we don't have enough information here. As apologist James White says, we actually have 
more than enough information. We, we don't have 99 pieces of the puzzle and we have to fill in the missing piece. Instead, we've got 101 pieces of the puzzle and uh, we just have to figure out which information belongs and which information does not. And the younger age here does not. All right, next objection. In Genesis 37, 36, it says that it was the Midianites who sold Joseph to Potiphar, whereas in Genesis 39.1, it was the Ishmaelites who sold Joseph to Potiphar. So which one was it? Well, the good news is this. This answer is coming from apologeticspress.org, apologeticspress.org. These two names, um, Midianites and Ishmaelites, describe two tribes that were either the same tribe, two different names, or they were so similar that the terms were used interchangeably. Um, you might say that this is, uh, you know, that constitutes an error or something like that. No, it's just, it was the common vernacular of the way people used to speak back then and uh, not an error at all. It's just a cultural, cultural idiosyncrasy. Look, when, um, when Christopher Columbus landed in the West Indies in, uh, in the Caribbean, he called the natives Indians. He was making a mistake, but still to this day, Native Americans are sometimes called Indians. And as a matter of fact, when I went out to the Hopi reservation back in um, the early 2000s, they called themselves Indians. Well, they're not from India, so why do they do that? Well, it's just the example of, in this case, one name being used for two different people groups. Here, we've got uh, two different names being used for the same people group. So was it the Ishmaelites? Was it the Midianites? It, we're talking about the same different, uh, the same group. Um, you see this as well in the story of Gideon in the book of Judges, chapter eight. Um, in the same passage, you've got, the, you've got the, uh, you've got people described as Midianites and alternatively as Ishmaelites. So no problem, just cultural vernacular, not a contradiction. Rest at ease. Objection seven. In Matthew twenty-seven verse five, it says that Jesus, that Judas dies by hanging himself, whereas in Acts 1.18, Judas died because he jumped off a cliff. Um, it doesn't say that he jumped off a cliff, so there's actually an error here, but it says that he fell headlong and tumbled off of a cliff. What happened here? Judas hung himself on a tree over a cliff, and after he had died, actually extra-biblical um, tradition tells us that his body grew very bloated. As a matter of fact, there are accounts that Judas, even before he died, was very fat, very bloated. That's coming from outside the Bible, so don't put too much stock in it or take it with a grain of salt, rather. But the idea is he's very heavy, he's very fat, he's very bloated. And after he had died, the um, the rope snapped or the tree limb broke or what, what have you, and he tumbled down one of those cliffs that's very prevalent in that area. His body spilled uh, open, his guts poured out. Not a pretty picture, um, but uh, given what he did to Jesus, eh, it's hard to feel sorry for him. All right, now, final objection. Supposed contradiction. Mark 15, 25. Jesus was crucified on the third hour. John 19, 14 says that Jesus was crucified at the sixth hour. All right. Uh, this difficulty is answered according to defendinginerrancy.com in this way. Um, each of the gospel writer here writers here used a different time system. John follows the Roman time system, while Mark follows the Jewish time system. And we see this pop up uh, many times in the course of their Gospels, but according to the Roman system, it was, um, it was the sixth hour. According to the Jewish time system, it was the third hour, still the same time. We're still looking at um, uh, the, the, the same time on the clock, uh, but just different ways of calculating time. And uh, so no contradiction there. Okay. Hope that is helpful to you. How did I do? Did I do it? Was it? I think it was probably a little bit more than eight minutes. But um, 
uh, hopefully, um, hopefully that was helpful. Now, I did get a question come in. What does a copyist error mean? Wow, I should totally explain that. A copyist error is 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 this. So the Bible that you read is the yours came from a printing press, but originally the original manuscripts manuscripts that it was based off of were copied by copyists, by scribes. Matter of fact, Jesus is um, often interacting with the scribes in his day who held a lot of cultural authority. The scribes were the ones who knew the Bible better than anyone. Ironically, they didn't know, they didn't um, admit that the scriptures pointed to Jesus, but, um, or at least most of them. Um, the uh, So these copyists or these scribes were the ones who would copy the manuscripts uh, by hand, word for word, meticulously, from one manuscript to another. And in the Old Testament era and tradition, that was how these scriptures were copied. Interestingly enough, it's very timely that we're talking about this because a bunch of new ancient manuscripts were recently found. And uh, they're the first ones to be found since the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, 1948. So, uh, so that's really cool. This is a really cool time to be talking about Old Testament fragments and and scribes and um and and uh scripture copyists but sometimes what would happen would be a copyist would make an error and when that happened they would have to go back and restart but sometimes some of the errors did make it into the manuscript that was um that was uh handed off and um this is clearly what we have here this is you know these two scribal errors that i just mentioned these two copyist errors. Uh, the good news is this, we can identify them, we know where they are, we know what the error was, and we know what the underlying truth is here as well. So uh, scripture says, let two or more bear witness. What we have is we've got two witnesses, and they are both testifying to the same event, but reporting on it differently. And what we can do is we can use reason, we can use other scriptural facts, and we can let scripture interpret scripture to find out which one of the two witnesses is um, is accurately reporting what was originally recorded. So our argument when we're talking about biblical inerrancy is not that the the, the copy that we have today is inerrant, in, uh, but but rather that the Bible as it was originally written is inerrant. And so what we, what we do then is in order to figure out what the original um, documents said, we just have to go back and compare and um, and use textual criticism and figure that out. So let's see, a couple more questions coming in. What is the proper response to perceived contradiction that we cannot explain? And this is coming in from someone named What Really Matters. Well, first thing you can do is you can say, I don't know. But if you're reasoning with a Christian, your response is going to be different than a non-Christian. Here's why. If you're already talking to a Christian, what you can say is, look, here are some good websites um, to go check out. I would say you could go to these three websites that I used for this this episode, defendinginerrancy.com, answersingenesis.org, and apologeticspress.org. You can also go to gotquestions.org. That's another good one. I've had Shane, the um, the author of the majority of those questions, on my show as well. Uh, but there's a lot of great resources, carm.org, C-A-R-M. Um, but there's a lot of great resources out there. If you're dealing with a non-believer, 
what you can do is you can say, well, what's what's wrong with a contradiction in your worldview? And they can say, well, if there's a contradiction, it's necessarily false. Well, here's the problem with that. A contradiction presupposes the existence of the laws of logic. The laws of logic are immaterial, absolute, universal, unchanging, knowable, and they are also mutually ultimate. So the law of non-contradiction, the law of identity, and the law of excluded middle each uh, none of those is logically prior to the others. Each of them is is equally ultimate to the others, and yet they are distinct from one another. So you could say we've got a case of there being three and a case of of there being one. There's there's three and there's one. Laws of logic like that make perfect sense within a worldview in which the triune God of Scripture is. Um, the triune God of Scripture would would uh, explain why logic is a thing, why logic is real. Even the fact that it's a, he's a triune God, three and one, that explains how there could be something like logic where there's uniformity in diversity, unity, sorry, unity, not uniformity, unity in diversity. So um, if you're talking to like an atheist, for example, laws of logic have no basis. They would have to explain laws of logic as something material. Matter necessarily changes. Matter is not universal in the sense that like a rock is not an explanation of anything. Um, and it's not a, certainly not a universal explanation. So um, laws of logic have no basis in an atheistic worldview. There are other worldviews where, where their God or their primary metaphysic has some of the explanations, sorry, has some of the attributes of the laws of logic, but not all of them. And so laws of logic only make sense within the biblical worldview and a contradiction makes no sense uh, appealing to a contradiction is appealing to logic, which is ultimately appealing to the biblical worldview. So um, there's not um, there's not there's not uh, an accusation from a non-believer that the Bible has contradictions doesn't hurt. It doesn't sting. It can't sting because the um, the the Bible is the necessary basis for there even being something called logic, which is what contradictions violate. So hopefully that is helpful. Um, Gospel Ambassador asks, do you know about the King James only position? Yes, I do. And I'm not the best equipped person to deal with that. I recommend the work of James White, the King James only controversy. And um, I haven't read the book, but I've heard him talk about it quite a bit. And I think he'd be a good resource to check out. Um, I've had people tell me that the King James Bible is the only Bible that's worth its salt. I don't think that's accurate. I think that the manuscripts, my understanding, and I'm not a textual scholar, my understanding is the manuscripts that they're using are not the best, oldest, most reliable manuscripts. Um, I'm not going to get into the streams of manuscripts and and the different traditions, the Byzantine versus the Alexandrian or anything like that. Um, again, I'm not the best person to ask about this. Sorry, but James White and there are other scholars who, who do a good job on that. All right. Uh, Rodrigo Gomez says, makes sense, Joel. Thank you. P.S. Waiting for the third episode of Catechids. Stay tuned tomorrow, brother. Lord willing, it's going to be coming out. Okay. So thank you all for watching. We've gone way over the eight minutes, but hopefully this was helpful. Hopefully um, you got something out of this. Can I also just encourage you and um, invite you to check out the rest of our work by going to thethink.institute. You can get all of our episodes from the Think Institute network by going to thethink.institute slash podcast. And you can get our email, which I need to send out another one of those pretty soon, um, by going to thethink.institute slash think 
dash updates, or you can just go to the website, look around, you'll see it there. If you enjoy the work that we do with the Think Institute, can I can I tell you something? We are support raising missionaries through an organization called Crew. If you might have heard good things about Crew, bad things about Crew, we are with Crew Church Movements. It is very, very good, very solid, woke. And um, if that means something to you, then it means something important to you. But um, but we are support raising missionaries, and I want to invite you to partner with my family and me. You can do that by going to give.crew, C-R-U dot org, give.crew.org slash 101-8841. Some of you have taken that invitation and have become prayer and financial partners with us. I want to say thank you. We could not do this work without your support. Really, really appreciate it. One more thing. If you haven't subscribed to us on YouTube yet, why not subscribe? Hit that bell. Make sure you don't miss a moment. And uh, if you're watching on YouTube, thank you. If you're listening to the podcast, thank you. If you're listening on Facebook, watching on Facebook, thank you. I appreciate you guys. If you have questions, send them to thethink.institute at gmail.com. Let me see if I have that email address. I can post it up here. No, I don't. I need to. But uh, go to thethink. Let's see. All right, there we go. Email me at thethink.institute at gmail.com if you have any questions. And look, you can hit me up on Facebook, but I have so many people hitting me up on Facebook. It's hard to keep up with Facebook Messenger. Email is better. Okay, so please do. Thank you. God bless you. And remember, this is not goodbye. This has just been a little pit stop along the way of your spiritual journey. That's about all I have for you today. So until next time, trust your Bible. And I hope it made you think.